My name is Carl Minsner. I'm going to be moderating the event tonight uh, simply because the uh, National Committee of U.S.-China Relations, all of the people who usually moderate are out. Uh, so I'm, I'm the relief pitcher. Um, I'm, I'm a professor of law at, uh, at Fordham Law School. And, of course, it's our great honor tonight to, uh, to have a presentation by Professor Andrew Nathan, Columbia University, one of the leading uh, leading political scientists uh, and thinkers on Chinese uh, both domestic and foreign policy, and Dr. Scobell, who uh, is senior political scientist at RAND Corporation and also one of the leading thinkers on Chinese foreign policy. And the two of them together have put together an absolutely fantastic book, uh, China's Search for uh, Security, which you can buy outside. I'll just say one or two cent words at the beginning, reasons why I think this is a great book. Um, one, it's comprehensive. You are looking at a range of foreign policy issues, uh, anything from strategic to economic to human rights, and across the broad spectrum of countries and areas in which China is engaged. Second, it really does offer a very unique view in terms of looking at issues from the perspective of Beijing, which I think is just a great way for people not such as yourselves, who are obviously quite interested in China, but generalists who might not know, uh, uh, might not know as much about China, who want to sort of understand what the relevant issues are and see it from Beijing's perspective. So without further ado, we're going to start the presentations by Dr. Scobell and Professor Nathan, and then we're going to move to questions and answers after about 20 minutes. Thank you, uh, and thank you all for coming. Please buy those books. <laughs> but uh, don't, don't just uh, count on the excerpt in foreign affairs. Okay? It's, there's much more to it than that. Anyway, it's a, seriously, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm based in Washington uh, in Rand's uh, DC office. I can see the Pentagon from my window. And uh, so I'd like to talk a little bit about how I see uh, uh, what a better armed and more assertive China means for the United States. Uh, and, um, you know, we, as I said, we spend a lot of time in our, as was said, a lot of time in our, our book and the Foreign Affairs article talking about how China perceives the U.S. I just want to make uh, one observation on how the United States views China, or at least uh, the uh, security uh, community uh, views, views China. You know, just as we point out in, in, in our book, there are different lenses with which China views, through which China views the United States. There are also lenses by which we view China and we in the United States. And you know, in the, I'm exaggerating slightly, uh, but uh, it's, it's rare to go to a, a Pentagon briefing where Sunza is not mentioned. And, uh, you know, this... Uh, I bring up Sunza not to say, uh, argue that he has an influence on uh, contemporary Chinese strategy. Uh, I think he does, but that's not the reason for bringing him up. The reason is because I think it, it affects the way we perceive China, and uh, especially on the military side. And you know, Sunza Bingfa is often shrunk down to one, one sentence. And what is that sentence? You probably guessed it. All warfare is based on deception. So how does that affect the way we view China, many people are suspicious. Are we being taken in by Chinese, the Chinese? Are they being truthful with us? Uh, so this tends to uh, affect, uh, influence uh, the, way, the way we uh, react and, and view what China is, is doing. And of course, it works the other way around, too. China has uh, uh, preconceived notions and stereotypes about the United States as well. All right. Um, 
China's defense budget's been rising double digits uh, for several decades now. It's been undertaking a significant uh, upgrading of its weapon systems, uh, much more realistic training of the PLA. PLA today is much more capable. And as we know, if you look at the, read the newspapers, China's becoming more assertive as well in recent years. Uh, and I don't use the word assertive uh, in a uh, judgmental way. I think you can have positive assertiveness or constructive assertiveness and negative or destructive assertiveness. And uh, you be the judge. Uh, but I think for many in the United States and for many of China's neighbors, uh, China's recent assertiveness has not been of the construct always been of the constructive nature. So, um, do we have something to worry about? Is China a threat? Actually, that's often the question that's posed, is China a threat? I don't think it's quite the appropriate way to phrase it. Uh, like any, any country uh, of, of any stature presents a threat to another country, uh, even if it's only potential. The, the China, looking at the United States, sees that we have significant capabilities which to harm China. But does that mean we have the intent to do so? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, similarly, when we look at China, China has capabilities to threaten, the, threaten US interests. That doesn't mean they're going to, going to actually follow through. Well, militarily, I would suggest China's military threat is, to the United States is primarily the Western Pacific. Okay. It's not exclusively, but it's primarily the Western Pacific. And what's, it, what's uh, under threat? It's our military forces that are operating in the region and military bases in the region. But outside of the Western Pacific, China doesn't pose that much of a threat uh, to the United States. Uh, the biggest, uh, some of the biggest threats come from China's expanding uh, submarine fleet and from its increasingly accurate uh, ballistic and cruise missiles. And we, I'd be happy to talk about uh, China's uh, brand new aircraft carrier or anything else, uh, but uh, I think I'll spend the next few minutes uh, talking about uh, how I, how I think, uh, how we think that China's uh, military is in many ways overstretched. Now I have to be careful when I say that around Pentagon people because they they say you know you think the PLA is overstretched, ha! <laughs> you know the U.S. military is is seriously overstretched um, in a much bigger way, but. We're talking about two very different kinds of militaries. And uh, so I think that's important to bear in mind. Uh, China's uh, military is structured quite differently and for much different purposes. Uh, when we look, we do the bean counting and look at how many men and women are under arms, how many weapon systems, and so on, uh, we tend to assume that uh, the underlying assumption is they're all, they're, they can all be brought to bear in a conflict with country X or country Y. The truth is that's unlikely to happen because the PLA is charged with a multiple, uh, multi a wide array of missions. And there are several factors that really uh, almost guarantee that all those resources will not be brought to bear in a conflict. Uh, first uh, reason for this is because the PLA is subject to what we call a domestic drag. That means it has significant responsibilities for China's internal security. It's not the only agency uh, responsible for secure, internal security. You know, there's a People's Armed Police, a, a National Gendarmerie. There are other entities uh, responsible for this, for internal security. But the PLA has a significant backup role. 
And uh, you only have to look at the makeup of the PLA, uh, roughly 2.25 million men and women under arms. Of that, about 1.6 million, or set roughly 70%, are in the ground forces. If you are a military and, and you're supposedly preparing for uh, you know, a local or limited war under conditions of informatization, why do you need such a vast military? It's a drag. The answer is you don't, but that's not why. But China needs, feels like it needs that size of a military force uh, because it has other responsibilities, including as a backup role for domestic security. And those, uh, if you look at the um, deployment of those forces, they're primarily in the eastern part of, of China, close to populated areas, not where you might expect them to be on China's, manning China's borders, <clears throat> frontiers. In addition, uh, the PLA has uh, tremendous uh, responsibilities uh, for territorial defense. Uh, China has approximately 14,000 miles of uh, uh, land borders, land frontiers to, to to protect, and about 9,000 miles of coast uh, to protect. Again, that's not just the responsibility of PLA, but the PLA ha bears a significant portion of that. Um, perhaps one, one element of good news for the PLA, but it, it's, th there's a, a mixed, th there's a flip side to it too, is there's, for now, uh, there's no uh, tensions in the Taiwan Strait. So, uh, the PLA doesn't have to worry about that, for the, at least for the, for the time being. But beyond Taiwan, uh, increasing uh, uh, levels of, of responsibility are th have been thrust upon the, the PLA. And uh, the war scenario that I mentioned uh, a, a while ago is, uh, in many ways, way off in the distance. Because what the PLA is dealing with in the here and now is uh, a lot of non-traditional security threats, both inside China uh, and on China's periphery. And as China becomes increasingly a global player uh, with interests and, uh, and uh, citizens all over the world, uh, the PLA is ex has to assume some responsibility uh, for, for protecting those, those interests. So you see that, thanks, you see that uh, in, uh, Thousands of, of PLA troops have participated in, in UN security. Uh, I mean, UN uh, peacekeeping operations. You also see uh, uh, since uh, January 2009, you see uh, a small flotilla of uh, PLA uh, vessels uh, conducting anti-piracy missions. Um, the PLA has been involved in non-combatant evacuations in places like Libya. So increasingly, uh, the PLA is expected to play many uh, multiple roles, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. Primarily, that's been within China. But we know that the PLA is, is uh, gearing up uh, to, to also play such a role out well beyond China's borders. They now have a hospital ship. Uh, uh, and uh, the aircraft carrier could also be used uh, uh, in, a, in a humanitarian mission. Uh, somewhere, somewhere in the region or somewhere in the world. Uh, nuclear, on nuclear uh, issues, things are getting more complicated. Uh, China is surrounded uh, by uh, more and more countries that have gone, have, have nuclear, have gone nuclear. Uh, currently, 
you know, China only has a missile force. Uh, they're in enhancing the uh, survivability of that missile force. Uh, but before long, probably in a few years, we'll have, uh, uh, we'll witness uh, submarine, a submarine, several submarines uh, coming on that will be able to launch uh, nuclear, nuclear missiles as well. Um, at the same time, uh, while we watch China grow stronger militarily, we shouldn't forget that uh, the rest of the countries of the region, their militaries, they're not standing still. They're also modernizing. So uh, the Indians, the Australians, the Japanese, the South Koreans, to name but a few, are also in the midst of a In fact, uh, you know, some people, including us, have characterized uh, what's going on in the Asia-Pacific as a, uh, an emerging arms race. So it's not uh, China. In short, China's military has a lot to think about. I'll stop there and turn it over to Andy. <clears throat> Thanks. Thanks to uh, all of you for such a good turnout and to Jones Day for hosting us and Carl for his wonderful endorsement, which we will print on the back <laughs> of the next edition of the book. So I'll pick up from Carl's comment that the, that the in Beijing's Beijing eye view of things is one of the special features of the book and build on what Andrew said to sort of summarize how we present that in the book. We talk about Beijing policymakers being concerned with four rings of security, and we contrast this with the US security situation to drive the point home to American readers. So Beijing policymakers are very concerned about security within the borders of China, with Tibet, with Xinjiang, with the turbulent social change that's affecting all of the population throughout the country with the Korean minority on the Korean border. And as Andrew said, they devote a lot of uh, resources, including of the formal military, to the maintenance of this domestic order. Then when they look, and if you compare that to the US, this is not an important mission of the US military, and it's not really deployed for domestic use. It's very rare for that to, to be done with the US military. Then looking around at the second ring, which are China's immediate neighbors, there are, I think we count 24 neighboring countries compared to two for the United States. And among those countries are such uh, threatening giants as Russia, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, India, and so on, countries that China's had trouble with, countries with large and significant militaries, countries that China's at peace with at the moment, but with which it has fought wars in the past and where there are some real clashes of security interests, let's say, between China and Japan. That is not cultural hatred. It's because the two countries are so close and have clashing security interests. Then we talk about a third ring which is the 24 neighboring countries and the other countries that those countries are involved with that don't directly border on China that form what we call six regional systems. So that, for example, um, the Northeast Asia regional system is the two Koreas, Japan, Russia, the United States. And when China deals with any one of those neighbors, it can't deal with them on a bilateral basis because they're all tied up in complicated institutions and conflicts of their own. And the similar case would be Southeast Asia, where there are the, 
there are many different interests, but there's also the ASEAN structure and the ARF structure and so forth, and so that the management of its uh, relations around China becomes very complicated for China. And then there's the fourth ring, which is the rest of the world, which in the, as recently as 20 years ago, China really had no presence at all in, but where now it has growing interests which are predominantly economic in motivation, having to do with getting a hold of resources of energy, resources, raw materials, copper, agricultural resources, as well as markets. And it's not really a strategic interest of gaining influence over other governments' values or the other governments' uh, uh, strategic uh, alignments. It's not the Cold War kind of Soviet camp versus U.S. camp. It's really chiefly about economic. Two of the features that run through all four of the rings, there are two things. One is the U.S. Everywhere that China looks, the U.S. is there, starting with the first ring, where the U.S. is very active in, in, in promulgating our values and our vision for the future of China with various foundations, the NED, the Asia Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Open Society Foundation with our educational programs that we educate a lot of Chinese students and graduate students here and all kinds of efforts, broadcasting efforts and things like that. So the U.S. is a factor there in trying to influence the first ring in a way that the Chinese security authorities view as essentially subversive or hostile. We, we think of it as um, benevolent and helpful, but but for the, and some Chinese leaders, uh, educators and others welcome it, but in the legal profession, but the, the security people in particular think of these things as, as threatening of control. Then when you look at the second ring, the U.S. is incredibly active there. We have formal alliances with Korea, with Japan, Australia. We have a defense commitment to Taiwan. We have an informal alliance with Vietnam, with India. We have... Uh, uh, we're active in Afghanistan, which is a country that borders on China. We have a very big presence in Pakistan and in Central Asia. Um, and, in the, and then when you look into the, and that's true of the third ring as well, and then when you look into the fourth ring, which is all about China's wanting secure access to resources, they find the, the U.S. is... A, very big actor there, and they view the U.S. as competing for energy security, competing for control over resources and influence over the world economy and over world regimes. I mean, we increasingly in this age of globalization, there are all these treaties and institutions like the World Trade Organization and its dispute resolution mechanism that are also really important. I put those in the fourth ring or maybe in the next edition, make it a fifth ring of global institutions where the U.S. has strong views, which China occasionally agrees with, but oftentimes has a different vision, say, in the human rights regime, where the U.S. has one vision, say, of Internet freedom, and China has, with other, China and a bunch of other countries, have a different view of how that should be regulated. So the U.S. is a presence everywhere that Chinese policymakers look in a way that's not true for for, uh, for American policymakers, when they look at problems around the world, China is important, but it's not 
uh, always there every place that American policymakers look. To begin with, it's not a factor in American domestic security at all. Um, and a second feature of China's foreign policy is that it's, in, it's almost always connected back to domestic stability. So the concerns with the fourth ring are not about resources just for the sake of resources, but it's getting energy resources and other resources for the sake of maintaining economic growth so that you can maintain domestic stability, which depends heavily on economic growth, more heavily for the Chinese regime than it does for the American or Japanese governments, for example, where poor economic performance doesn't lead to a revolution. It ought to, maybe, but it doesn't. And in China, you know, there is the fear, we don't know because it hasn't happened yet, but there's the fear that a, a, an economic downturn could lead to, you know, an, an overthrow of the regime. And in managing the bordering countries as well, uh, a lot of it has to do with resources and a lot of it has to do with um, <coughs> preventing uh, interference in Tibet and Xinjiang and, uh, and, and managing nationalistic sentiment in China and so forth. So there's a strong linkage or an exposure, you might say, of domestic political stability to, can't read it, oh, three? Three. Okay. To, <laughs> to uh, at my age, you have to write it in big dark letters. <laughs> so, so those are two of the themes. Now, um, so I, I think China has a, a view of the U.S. then as intending ill and as having many, many instruments of threatening instruments of power over China. But there's a second level in China's per, Chinese policymakers' perception of the U.S. that has emerged rather recently, I think, which is that they believe that the balance of power is, is, is at a tipping point or near or trending in a direction toward a tipping point, because they see the US as weakening. Um, they, that's a debate we have in our own society, so maybe they're right. But their, I think, analysis is that the US economy is not going to recover strongly, and that the US political system is afflicted with immobilism and with weak leadership. And they view Obama, in particular, as a weak leader because of his efforts at the beginning of his first term to compromise with the Republicans, with the North Koreans, with Iran, and with China itself, while they view themselves as capable managers, and I think that's a plausible view, who have been able to carry off a series of power successions and to manage a series of challenges like the economic downturn of 08 and the Sichuan earthquake and other challenges and the Tibetan dissatisfaction. They view themselves as a strong leadership. And so I think they believe that the time is ripe for China to begin to be, as Andrew said, assertive. That this is, and they've shown this already in the recent years. It's not a new thing with Xi Jinping. That the Chinese should stand up and say, these are my core national interests and I'm not going to back down. And I think that's a policy that's very deliberate. It's not pushed by nationalistic sentiment. It's it's a strategic decision, and we see it reflected in their behavior around the Senkaku slash Diaoyu Islands. I don't know what to call them anymore. I'm afraid if I just use one word, people will jump on me from the other side. So, and, and in the South China Sea, that their strategy there is to, is to not back down from their claims, to continue to assert their claims, and the expectation that over 
a, a period of time, the other side will back down. Japan is weak, the U.S. is weak, the Philippines are weak, Vietnam is, they see as a tough country, but one that nobody else will help. Nobody will come to the defense of Vietnam in a crunch. So I think they believe that these resources can be theirs if they stick to the strategy. Great. Well, okay. Thanks, thanks, <laughs> thanks to both uh, Dr. Scoble and to Professor Nathan. Um, as we're going to open for question and answer. As I'm just going to take the opportunity as moderator to throw one question at you, a very specific one. Taiwan. Um, one of the interesting perspectives I feel about your book is that you take a long-term perspective. It's, you're almost looking towards the future 10 or 20 years out as to how things are going to develop uh, in, a, in a range of different areas. With respect to Taiwan, you have a couple of interesting passages in there. I'm sort of looking through them real carefully. Um, one of them would, went along the lines of, if and when reunification happens, we'll have to sort of consider what, what it means when sort of Taiwanese strategic assets, location, geography, become unified with, with the mainland in, in, uh, at some point. And I found that sort of an, just an interesting concept that you're sort of looking past what many people think of as the current issues with Taiwan. So let me just reflect that back to you. Is that, a, is that something for those of us who are just sort of generally interested in China's geostrategy, who just assume that that's sort of an inevitable result over the next couple of decades? We have a deal. Andrew answers the hard questions, and I answer the. You want me to? This is, this is an easy one. You can <laughs> <laughs> um, the Taiwan problem is on a trajectory favorable to Beijing, with increasing uh, economic dependency of Taiwan's prosperity on the mainland, and, and and increasing lack of interest in the United States in in defending Taiwan. Although I have to say that if the scenario was an unprovoked attack by the mainland on Taiwan, which is not going to happen. If that were the scenario, the U.S. would go to the defense of Taiwan. It, it has to. But that's not going to happen. So it seems to me that, uh, that the trajectory now, this is not, I'm not predicting the future. I don't know. I'm just talking about today's trajectory. Second, the Pentagon plans, looks we look, and the Pentagon itself explicitly looks at what-if kind of scenarios down the line. So that's not a, again, not a prediction, but it's a what-if. It's a way of asking, what is the strategic value of Taiwan to Beijing? Why does Beijing want Taiwan so badly? Why don't they just give it up since the Taiwanese would like to be independent? And the answer is that it has this strategic value that you alluded to. It pushes out the... Uh, strategic perimeter of China by a couple of hundred miles. It gives them potentially access to the naval and air bases on the island. It gets rid of a barrier to the operations of the Chinese Navy in that direction. And it has other, you know, other values as well, but that's a primary one. That wasn't so hard. You have to now ask a hard question and Andrew has to answer it. We have, we have a microphone circulating, and I understand. I'm going to I'll point uh, the woman over there in the black. And if you could identify yourself when you speak, that would be very helpful. Thanks. Um, Lucia green Weiskel, and I'm from the Innovation Center for Energy and Transportation in Beijing. Um, I wondered about the, you had mentioned in the fourth, uh, the fourth ring, rather, China is competing with the U.S. for resources. I've been reading the EIA recent report about the U.S. becoming potentially energy independent by 2025. Is China going to read that as an opportunity? Is, is sort of now the U.S. isn't a competitor? Um, does that keep the U.S. off the table in terms of 
Central Asia, Middle East, and Africa, oil and natural gas? Thank you. <laughs> now, I think the best way to answer that question is to first lay out, even though I think we're cautiously optimistic, I put the word, you, earlier today you said we're optimistic, I'd say we're cautiously optimistic that things are going to work out between the U.S. and China. Um, there's certainly lots of reasons, reasons for optimism, but I, I think it's important to emphasize that there's, there's a significant uh, underlying um, sense of, of distrust, uh, strategic suspicion on both sides, and it takes a lot to get beyond that. And, and these stereotypes, uh, I mentioned the sons of stereotype, there's the stereotypes in the other direction too. Uh, and China, so China, as, as Andy, I think, mentioned, uh, perceives, I mean, there are different levels here, but the, the, it's a pretty thick level or a thick layer of uh, uh, presumption that w what the U.S. is doing is, is uh, in, any, in any arena, is aimed at weakening or, or, or constraining China. And so you have a whole series of, of events that, uh, that China, that Beijing can point to uh, that makes it hard for them to look at that report you mentioned and say, oh, no problem solved. You know, UNICAL, um, you know, back in, was it 2005, I think? Uh, you know, that was poorly <laughs> planned, poorly, uh, it was a poorly implemented effort by Beijing, but we also didn't react terribly well either. Um, but, uh, you know, that's then, Darfur, okay, from, uh, for many Americans, that was about, you know, standing up for, standing up for what we believe and, and, uh, and forcing a, a, a repressive, maybe even genocidal regime to stop doing what it's doing. From China's perspective, or many in China, this was an effort by the United States yet again to try and, uh, you know, uh, weaken or uh, sever its, uh, China's efforts to uh, secure energy resources. There? Yeah, Tom. Uh, thank you both for an excellent uh, presentation. I wonder if I can ask a small question and then a slightly larger one. The small one is, is there any readout on uh, Xi Jinping personally and the, or Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang and the role that they might play in formulating foreign policy going forward? The second, can I push back, Andy, on your uh, comments toward the end of your remarks? To say that uh, they, you know, China has views the uh, United States as weakening, and they view themselves as capable managers. Uh, if one were to argue that that was the view as circa 2010, and that 2012 it may have changed with the Boshi Lai scandal, with increasing uh, uh, concern over levels of corruption at the very top and throughout uh, the system, and uh, perhaps uh, a slightly more optimistic outlook in the United States with the economy and the political system. Uh, can, we, can we challenge that view two years later? So my understanding about Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang is that it's the job of the premier to manage the economy, which includes foreign trade, but that the strategic things we're talking about here are uh, managed by the head of state party secretary, by Xi Jinping, that he'll be including military things. And so... <clears throat> She uh, has been the deputy chair of the Central Military Commission already for five years. He seems to have had a strong hand in a series of promotions. I believe he's been involved in the 
emerging South China Sea, East China Sea strategy through these recent years. And so it looks as though he'll be running foreign and, uh, uh, and military policy, and Li Keqiang won't be doing that, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> although, I mean, except for the economic and financial piece of it. Um, I think that the, 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 the Boshi Lai incident reads out to me as the resiliency of the current system to a challenge to it. So Boshi Lai, uh, so the, the, the correct institutions in China today are the institutions where the outgoing senior leaders and the retired senior leaders above a certain rank decide on who's going to succeed to power, and they pick, make a pick from a very short list of favorite guys who've run, come up through the system and have passed all of the tests, which include performance tests and sort of relationship tests. And Boshi Lai tried a sort of quasi-American thing of kind of campaigning for office, and that was, uh, and, and in doing so, revived something that Deng Xiaoping had declared to be dead, which was ideology. And the system kind of closed up over his head and reasserted itself and has proven to survive. And, and Xi Jinping came through it, you know, clean. And he came through the Bloomberg report clean as well, you know, that said his family was rich. So, <clears throat> and so, so I think he's in a very strong position. And, and when I speak about the Chinese system being strong, I don't mean that they aren't aware of all the pro They're very much aware of the problems of corruption, environment, water shortage, peasants, workers, intellectuals, entrepreneurs, Tibetans, Christians. They're aware of all those problems, but I think they feel that they have all the tools in their hands uh, to deal with it and that they, 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 they know how to, which may be false, but they... They give off an impression of, of being confident that they can handle these things. And he is placed in a, a priority on corruption and seems to have the power to pick targets like uh, Ling Jihua or the guys that the guy in the today's times that they said in Chengdu, I forget the person's name, is you know, that they're going to go out and pick a bunch of targets and they're not afraid of anybody fighting back. And, uh, and they're going to make a show of suppressing corruption. And I think the end game of that is to make corrupt people behave, be much more careful about how they show off their corruption so that it doesn't outrage the public so much. Sir, back there. I'm, I'm Richard Radies from Russell and Company. Um, what is the Chinese strategic military thinking on the use of nuclear weapons? And do they believe that because they have 30-odd uh, ICBMs with nuclear warheads that are capable of hitting the United States, that this gives them some sort of a, a checkpoint against us so that if they took out one of our naval vessels in the South China Sea, we wouldn't be able to escalate uh, to the extent that we might want to? To the best of my knowledge, China has yet to uh, publish an official nuclear doctrine. Um, they've 
because they publish a biannual um, defense white paper, which is actually due out any, any day or it's probably going to be, uh, probably, we'll probably see it early next year. Um, but they'll, they always have statements about nu nu their nuclear posture. Um, you know, they're m m the most uh, frequently cited uh, uh, thing is the uh, no first use policy that China claims to have. It, it may be, they may be, I think they're sincere about it, but it doesn't cost them anything. And, you know, how are we going to know <laughs> until, until the, the time, you know, push comes to shove? But what we think is that China has a, uh, a uh, doctrine of minimal deterrence. And so they, they have, I think, about 40, uh, 40 um, missiles armed with, with nuclear warheads. And uh, you know, they are intent on trying to make, improve their survivability so uh, they can survive that, that first strike and, and retaliate. And they, they seem to feel that that's, that's a significant uh, uh, adequate deterrent capability. So they're hardening uh, the silos. They're making them uh, mobile, uh, switching from liquid to solid, solid fuel, which makes it a lot quick. You know, they can, they can fuel them very, very much quicker. So that's that seems to be uh, what, what's uh, what, what's going on. But if but uh, to to underscore what he said, the strategy that they seem to have is to deter a nuclear strike on right. them. It's not to deter. Not sure what what you meant in your question, but it's not intended to deter um, sub nuclear strikes on China, if you're thinking that they would deter, uh, that an aircraft carrier, say, bombing Chinese missile sites would be answered with a first use of a nuclear weapon, we don't think that's the strategy. It's to deter somebody else's first use of a nuclear weapon. But fundamentally, you don't know. We're sure. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you got to look at what they have, like you said, they have 30 or they have 40 weapons, so it stands to reason that that's the potential use of those weapons. There's no other logic to that number of weapons, and they're not building up thousands of weapons. That's a pretty stable number of weapons. What's a greater concern is their conventional missiles, ballistic missiles. That's that they can use against aircraft carriers. That's designed to be used against aircraft but do they think because they've got this nuclear capability that it gives them more freedom of action? Yeah, it deters a nuclear attack on them. It does do that. Let's move to another another question here. Um, okay, uh, this gentleman here. Uh, Herbert Levin. Uh, the Chinese, the Chinese, thank you, Japan experts, uh, I have had a high opinion of, doesn't mean that their advice to the leadership is always followed with the competent people. And so I've been puzzled as to why the Chinese reaction uh, over Yadutai Senkaku has been uh, so clumsy. It's obviously Japanese domestic politics in its customary way, uh, with somebody trying to embarrass the government and so forth. Why, why have the Chinese stumbled in their handling of that, overreacted? So is this my turn? I, I don't agree that it's been clumsy. I think the strategy on the part of China is to show strength persistently, make life hard for Japan and the U.S. without 
triggering an actual military confrontation and to keep the fire burning under Tokyo and Washington for a series of years and to sh let those other guys find a way to back off. What was clumsy? Well, if, if you want to go back to the, the fishing boat. That, that's it, a good example where they showed, you know, don't mess with me, and the Japanese backed off. Well, well there's, a, there's a parallel version, which was that yeah. when, the, when the Japanese got the crew and interviewed them, yeah. the crew said, the captain was drunk. We yeah. told him we got to get out of there. These are Japanese waters. Right. They then went and briefed the captain, and he was drunk. So they sent the crew back immediately with clean clothes. They were greeted as heroes in the Beijing airport, standing up to Japanese imperialism. Uh -huh. Then a few days later, they sent the captain back. No one's ever heard about him since. The Chinese realized the guy had been drunk and he had embarrassed them. So, all right, that was a very sensible reaction. But then others got going on the propaganda side uh -huh. after the actual incident had been well handled uh, and this, this captain disappeared. So. I, I just wondered, the propaganda people have always wanted to heat anything up about anything, uh, and I wondered why they had been allowed to do so. That's, that's the reason. Well, one quick important point to make here is, I think the, at least I think, I, I suspect Andy agrees with me, but the misstep, the clumsiness was on the part of Japan, right. because the mistake they made was to put, announce they're going to try the captain. And then as soon as they realized he was drunk, they just sent him home. No, but that was that was the red flag for China. Because that, that implied that, that that China that Japan had sovereignty over those islands and jurisdiction over those islands. And that was, you know, if they just sent him home, I think this probably would have blown over. Perhaps I can jump in here. I'm kind of curious. This 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 raises an interesting issue that I noticed in your book too. Your your the depiction that you give in the book is a very state-oriented one. You focus on the leaders, you focus on the state, and the depiction of is very much the leadership is in control of pushing China's foreign policy. Others have speculated or thrown out explanations which said China, the leadership now is being driven more by popular nationalist sentiment. Can you speak a little bit about that, particularly with respect to, for example, the Diaoyutai and the Senkaku Islands issues? Is Chinese, are Chinese authorities facing sort of a wave of nationalism that's driving their policy in any particular direction, or is it still very much leadership-driven? We think it's leadership-driven. The nationalism is there. The leadership encourages it, as Herb said, and it, it backs up the credibility of their actions. But they're able to, they've been able to control it, to turn it up, to turn it down. Um, now, if they were to stumble into a military armed clash with the Japanese and lose it, which I think would happen if the clash actually occurred, then they would suffer from an uncontrollable uh, nationalist reaction that would threaten the regime, which is one of the reasons why I think they're pretty cautious in managing these various um, issues. But, but I don't believe that their actions up until now have been driven out of their control. And we have a chapter in the book about the policy-making system where we give our reasons for thinking of it in this way. We, it's not that we automatically take a kind of black box view of policy-making, like in the US we know it's very pluralistic, but it's that we actually think from an analysis of what we know that the Chinese system so far remains pretty centralized with respect to foreign policy-making. I think there was one way in the back up there. Yes. Yes, you. You go this way. <laughs> like, 
Hello, uh, good evening. My name is Wogan Wong, and I'm a student for politics uh, from University of Rochester. Uh, after reading your book, Ms. Nathan, uh, I have a question. Please allow me to look at the uh, U.S.-China policy uh, from another direction. If we look at the U.S. domestic policies, then we can find the uh, inconsistency, and China's policy towards USA uh, can be perceived as the set of reactions to those changes of policies from the U.S. Uh, actually, in your book, you mentioned uh, a few years ago when President George W. Bush came to the White House, uh, the policy uh, underwent a sudden change, and uh, in the last few years as well, uh, you know, the trade has, the trade issue has been discussed uh, in Congress, which uh, is not exactly the same as what Chinese leaders were expecting. Uh, so how would you perceive uh, in the future as the possibility of this kind of sudden change in uh, U.S. policy towards China? Thank you very much. Actually, I think that if you look at the sweep of uh, you know, the last uh, several decades of uh, uh, U.S. Uh, policy towards China across administrations, it's been remarkably consistent. Now, there have been changes, you know, changes in style and, and emphasis uh, um, from administration to administration. But by and large, I think there's more continuity than change. And what's interesting, I, I was struck by this uh, at a series of conferences on another project I'm working on, on U.S.-China relations, how repeatedly um, uh, Chinese academics uh, stressed that they thought that U.S.-China policy was more consistent than China's U.S. policy, policy towards the U.S. And I was really struck by that. Okay, I'm over here. Uh, yes, the gentleman in the front. Frank Kale. It's a shift from the Sinkakus Yaoyut to the South China Sea and the Spratlys and uh, Paracels. The big news today, these days, is China's uh, legal assertion of a right to obstruct shipping through the South China Sea. Nobody defines which part of the South China Sea, so far as I know. Uh, and that it is less than national. It is Hainan provincial uh, legal rule. So we've got a conflict. We've got a, a multilateral conflict. The U.S. is, at one level, not a part of the conflict, but certainly at another level has a great interest in the conflict. So, what would be your dual suggestion for how the conflict can be managed in a principled way so that it doesn't erupt in a mini-war? So I think, uh, first of all, uh, we have to, uh, in the Chinese phrase, let the water go down and the stones come out about what has actually been declared by the Hainan provincial or maybe a sub-provincial unit. I'm not sure who did it. But my understanding is, these assets in the South China Sea, these land formations under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, each carries with it a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone, that these land formations are 
in hugely, hugely valuable to every state that has any claim on them and increasingly valuable because of the increasing importance of the fishery resources, the increasing knowledge of the undersea energy resources, and the increasing importance of those sea lanes for global commerce and for the prosperity of each country. And China has presentable claims that are approximately as good as everybody else's claims to these various land features. All of them are ancient claims by you know ancient mariners who never thought about these issues hundreds of years in the future. So the Chinese have, the claims are not ludicrous that they have. They're, you know, lawyers can decide, but they're not, they're not ludicrous and they're not new. These are old claims. And so I think the Chinese strategy is, you know, this stuff is valuable. We have a claim to it and we're not just going to yield it because somebody, Hillary says this or some, or, you know, Frank Kale says you're offending the ASEAN states or something like that. This is real important stuff. We want to have it. Now, in order to keep that claim going, you have to, um, it's like your driveway. If you, if you give a, uh, what do you call it, an easement to your neighbor over your driveway and let the dr guy park there for 50 years and never say anything about it, he's going to own your driveway. He'll go to court and say, Frank Kale never exercised any control over this driveway, never told me not to park there. It's mine, right? He's a lawyer. Teach property law, you're right. <laughs> I'm right. So the Chinese have, if reason, they really claim... point, it involves if where the, the cesspool is located. <laughs> right. If they really claim these islands, they have to exert administrative activity over those islands. And so several years ago, they said, we're incorporating these islands into the province of Hainan, into the city of whatever, whatever city it was. It'll be administered from this city. The next logical step is that the city that's administering it says, I'm going to send boats there to enforce, I think, what I read, only the 12-mile territorial sea around these islands, not the whole nine-dotted line. I haven't seen that. I mean, we have to study the whole document, but that's the way I understood it. So I see it as not, not a new thing. It's not about the new leadership. It's not about any particular timing issue. It's just the next logical step. Um, of course, it does represent a continuing assertion of a claim that's just as important to other people. It's very, very valuable to the Vietnamese as well. And there have been, as you know, armed clashes there in these islands in 1977, and then again in 19, I think, 86, 88, in which case the Chinese, in both cases, I think, won against the Vietnamese Navy. So the possibility of conflict is there. The possibility of rationally solving that thing exists, of course. So what about the United States position. Let me, actually, I think we, we need to move, I need to make sure to get, get questions for, for so I'm going to take, we have eight, eight minutes left because we have to end it exactly, good, good, at exactly, no, we're going to get, get a new, that's uh, okay. We have to actually end directly at seven. So I'm going to take you over there and then you ask quick questions. Yes, uh, first, yes. Earlier on, you said that it's it's quite natural for China at this point in its development to want to start asserting its interests, um, not necessarily negatively, just saying, hey, we're here, we need energy, we're on the line of the Middle East, we need to trade. These are very natural, normal things. 
when I, you look at that and you contrast it with this topic, where you have a line being drawn down literally to the borderline of a huge number of states, which is just preposterous in any stretch of imagination. We can argue over the you know, like little legal points, but it's preposterous. <laughs> Why? And I, I, I said the context I personally have for that is several years ago, the first, a real shocker for me was going to Kazakhstan, Mongolia, and talking to people. And they were frightened of the Chinese. Frightened. And they were, they were saying, hey, you know, we love the Russians, which is surprising. And um, why do this now? How is this, how does this promote China's long-term interests? I'll take and then take a question from Tom, and then we'll, you can answer both. Take both of those two questions. Tom, go ahead. Oh, just a... Uh, Back in 99, and, and this, in uh, this, this in relation to what you were saying, uh, in 99, the, after the Belgrade bombing, things got out of hand in China, right? The Chengdu uh, uh, castle was burned. Uh, I understand uh, that um, a Chinese guy actually got into the U.S. Embassy grounds in Beijing. And he could have been shot. I mean, it could have, it could have gotten much worse. So, so uh, do you think that things are much, they're in better control now, the leadership's controlling things better? Because it almost lost it then. And then secondly, uh, in terms of leadership, the pivot, Obama's pivot to Asia, does China take that seriously? Do they consider that to be strong leadership that they're concerned about? Or is that just uh, another example of Obama not really knowing quite what to do? Okay. Um, as Andy, on the, on the South China Sea question, as, as Andy mentioned, this is, what you've been seeing uh, just this week is nothing new. Uh, I, I talk about it as being slow intensity conflict or creeping assertiveness, where you know China's gradually using all the instruments of national power to assert, make good on its claims. So it's not just it, it can use military uh, means, but it prefer to use you know diplomatic means, economic means, legal means uh, to, to strengthen its uh, claims on the South China Sea. By the way, that nine-dash line is a creation of the Republic of China. It was uh, the map that you see cited, uh, paraded around, is actually uh, comes from a 1947 map. So the, the PRC jumped on that, and it's uh, what's really interesting is there is no, and, and I've even talked to some Chinese lawyers about this, uh, experts in the area, they're, they're not clear, they cannot explain what that nine dash, they cannot justify that nine dash line. But it's there, they inherited it, and they're gonna, they're gonna fight uh, to uh, argue that it's, it has le legitimacy and, and because they think it strengthens their claims to the South China Sea. But why? The question is, it's the time has, the time has not come for China to yield any of the positions it has inherited. Let's put it that way. Did you also, with respect to Tom's question? Does that make sense? Um, yeah. I, well, I, I don't think they, they've lost control in any serious way. Yes, in 1999, some, somebody got a little out of hand, but that didn't last forever. So that could happen again. But I, I still don't think we've come to the place where they're being driven by is that, you had a, that was part of the, the, the pivot to Asia. Obama's the pivot to Asia. So I think they feel, look, American policy or any other big government's policy has its flips and flops. Obama's inherently weak in their view, but he's giving a twitch. And that's a time when China has to twitch back. You know, you don't, 
that's when they want to continue to show strength. I think they feel the U.S. can't sustain. First of all, the pivot or re rebalancing. rebalancing doesn't really amount to much. It's a lot of doesn't amount to much because the U.S. deployment in the Pacific has always been vast, as a matter of fact. So when you put a few, rotate some Marines through Australia or something like that, it's not really a major change. It's a symbolic thing, and the Chinese have responded symbolically by pointing out this is unwise and you're creating antagonism, and then they're also continuing their very steady and deliberate military buildup. So and then, you know, so I think, and we face a fiscal cliff, and we face this and that contingency, and we're going to send 75,000 troops to Syria. And so, you know, so history is very long, and uh, they can wait. I'm going to take one more question. Could I, could I just offer a correction? Hold on, I just get one other no, correction. Correction. <laughs> Errors are very valuable. Last, last question right over there. Uh, of the four rings, where, where would you perceive the greatest uh, internal or domestic is your breath? And... Um, Obviously, the first ring, but um, of those issues that you enumerated, mm. which is the most likely to, to threat to the regime? With Chinese leadership. Uh. And perhaps it may be just embarrassment internationally, but that may yeah. be the most important as anything else. Well, here's something where we, we may differ in, 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 in our interpret uh, judgments. I actually think China's leaders are somewhat more, uh, more uh, insecure than, than, than Andy seems to think right now. And, and uh, it's because there's so many things that could go wrong. And uh, it's, you know, standing up for the South China Sea or the Senkakus is important. You, for chi China's leaders, I think, feel it's important to be seen, to be standing up, standing strong on that, because they don't want to look weak in front of their, their people. That doesn't mean they're going to do anything extreme, but it, it makes it very difficult for them, whether it's the nine dash line or anything else, to compromise, be seen to compromise or back down, and that's and that <coughs> that's and again, it's what we think the greatest challenge is. But but I think what's more important is what China's leaders think they're most vulnerable on, and I think they they see a a, a lot of a, a whole spectrum of. of but aren't there challenges. instances and places in China domestically where the people themselves, whether it be food, pollution? Or even just basic necessities. So the problem, the, the chief threat is if those local expressions of dissatisfaction get accumulated up, aggregated up to a broad national movement like happened in 1989. And I think they, they, they believe that the most likely trigger of local discontent going national would be a perception of weakness of the leadership. That is to say, it's not that pollution would cause it or an economic downturn would cause it or this or that. What would cause those local discontents to go national would be if their determination to repress discontent were perceived as wavering. Then their enemies will rise up on a national yeah. level. That's what they believe. And that's what happened in 1989. I think they feel that no more Tiananmen. Unfortunately, we've hit the 7 o'clock, but uh, I'd like to thank our guests and to thank Jones Day for giving us this space.